family, take your Bibles and go to 1 Kings chapter 5. A very fitting song for the message tonight. A very fitting few songs for the message. Um, you know, as, as children of God, that is our purpose. And you've, you've heard a lot about that recently. Our purpose is to praise the holy name of the Lord our God. It is to bring Him glory. And if you're wondering why, why should I praise God? You should praise God because of who He is. And when you praise God for who He is, you will praise God always. It won't be dependent on how you feel that day. And let's just be honest, sometimes we don't feel like praising God. But it doesn't matter because He's still worthy of praise whether we feel like it or not. He's worthy of praise whether we feel that we're on the mountaintop or in a valley. He's always worthy of praise because of who He is. And that's a little bit of what we're going to see tonight. But 1 Kings chapter 5. Over the last couple weeks, we've gone over this chapter. And we've learned about the dealings between King Solomon and King Hiram. And uh, again, we know that Solomon was preparing to build the temple of God. And we've, we've seen in the first part of the chapter, I think it was from verse 1 to 4 or 1 to 5, how David really wanted to build the temple. It was a great desire, it was a noble desire that David uh, had. He wanted to accomplish his task, but while it was his desire, it was not in the will of God. In verse 5, we saw that Solomon was determined to build the temple. While it was not God's plan for David to build it, it was his plan for Solomon to build it. And uh, he was determined to accomplish that goal. As we go through the remainder of this chapter this evening... We're going to see that Solomon, he was dedicated to the quality uh, of the temple that he was called to build. And he was called by God to do it. And in chapter 6, we're going to see a lot uh, concerning the construction of the temple. But in chapter 5, we're told about some of the building materials that were used. uh, And then we'll see the significance of them. And what we're going to see tonight is this. And you kind of already probably know because I've kind of mentioned a couple times uh, recently as we've been in chapter 5, but we're going to see tonight that Solomon, he wanted to give God the very best that he possibly could as he built the temple. And he wanted to give the very best uh, that he could for God, both in that which was going to be seen by the eyes of men and that which was unseen. And uh, he wanted uh, everything to be of the highest quality. You know, quality matters. It matters. You know, when, when we hire people to do a job, we don't just say, well, you know, just do whatever. And it, I'm not really worried about a high-quality job. No, if you own a business or you hire somebody to do a job for you around your house or uh, construction work, you desire for them to do it well and with quality, and you want them to do your very best. And truly... God deserves the very best that we can give, and we should be giving it to Him. So consider tonight, are you giving God your very best? You're going to say, okay, well, why does God deserve it? Well, we sang about it already. God deserves our very best because of the fact, again, who He is, for one, but also He deserves the very best that a Christian can give because Christ paid for you with His own blood. If you're in Christ, He's paid for you with His own blood. And while we could never, ever fully repay him, or even uh, we could not really pay him anywhere near back, everything that we do in service to him and everything that we do in our life, it should be done with his sacrifice in mind. Amen. 
because he is worthy of the best. And Solomon, he determined to do this task of building the temple with the highest quality. We'll see it tonight. We'll see it later on. Uh, and it wouldn't be done cheaply. He didn't do it as cheap as possible. He wasn't trying to uh, save uh, every dime he could. He did it with value, with care, and with concern. And, and a lot of thought would go into this building. So as we prepare to look at this tonight, ask yourself these questions. Are you doing your absolute best to bring glory and honor to God? Are you giving God your best? Do you serve Him well, both in, in that which is seen and unseen? Or are you careless and you're just kind of doing uh, what you do so that you can say you did, or you're just doing as little as possible just so you can check the box? You know, that's a, that, that right there sums up the majority of Christians. They just do it. Oh, I'm done. I did what I need to do for the week. I went to church. I didn't serve anybody. I didn't care about anybody. I didn't try to edify the church, but I went to church, right? They just do the minimal. That's not biblical Christianity in any way. So look, are you, are you living and are you working and are you serving heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men? Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 6. So we're going to start there. And then we'll just read this verse and then we'll pray. It says, Now therefore, command thou that they hew me cedar trees out of Lebanon, and my servants shall be with thy servants and unto thee. Will I give hire for thy servants according to all that thou shalt appoint? For thou knowest that there is not among us any that can skill to hew timber like unto the Sidonians. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as it's preached, I pray that you help us to be dedicated to you. Help us to be committed to glorifying and honoring you in everything. And yes, it's hard and maybe seemingly impossible, Lord, but... Uh, with your help, we can do better, and we can live pure, we can live holy lives that uh, are set apart for your use. I pray that you'll just help me to say exactly what you'd have me to say this evening, and, and be honored and glorified in it, as I point people to you in your holy name, amen. Now, we're going to see uh, throughout these build, what we see with these building materials, again, this week and next week and, and down the road, that there's really a common theme with what Solomon used, and it was simply this, the best available. And we even see that uh, to be true with these cedar trees of Lebanon. If you notice there in verse 6, it talks about these cedar trees out of Lebanon. It says there in the beginning, and these cedar trees, they were the best trees used for building at this time. And based on my study, they were durable, they were very resistant to rot, they were resistant to worms, they were able to be polished to a fine shine, they were Top-notch. They were the best that you could get. And so much so that the Bible, even uh, according to the Bible, these, these trees signified strength and majesty and might. As the Bible says in Psalm 92, verse 12, it says, The righteous shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. In Ezekiel 31, verse 3, it compares the Assyrians to a cedar in Lebanon. And it says that these trees have fair branches. They have a shadowing shroud and a high stature. So, uh, obviously, these were high quality. Uh, they were uh, very good. And, of course, in some places in the temple, you would no doubt be able to see these cedar uh, trees uh, throughout the temple. Now, how much, I'm not really sure. But, uh, again, right along with these cedar trees and, and, and everything else that you would see inside the temple, it would be done well. And it would be done with materials that uh, were of the highest quality. And this was the desire of Solomon. But this was also 
the desire of David too. He, he desired that it would be done well. And I want to just see, I look at a, a little phrase here in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. So go there ahead a little bit to 1 Chronicles 22. And we've, we've seen a few verses around this as he charged Solomon, David charged Solomon before his death. But I want you to take note of a specific phrase and some words here that that David uses in regards to this temple. <clears throat> Look at verse 5. It says in verse 5, And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent, of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death, and we know that he did. We've seen that. But he says there, exceeding magnificent. And that simply means exceedingly great. And he didn't say that it should be. He said it must be. It must be exceeding magnificent. It must be glorious. It must point the nations to God and his wonderful glory. And just think about that. If you were to make a temple, or if you were to make anything that was to, to reflect the glory of God, man, how great would it have to be? It had to be incredible. And of course, a temple would be. But I want you to think about this tonight. Does that which people see in your life bring glory to God? This temple, it would bring glory to God. It would show uh, people how awesome God was. And he wanted to build this temple to bring glory to the Lord. Now go back to 1 Kings chapter 5 and look at verse 5 again. Look at verse 5 of 1 Kings 5. And we've seen this last week, but I just want to kind of make note of this phrase here. Look at verse 5. He says, and behold, I purpose to build a house. And notice, why does he want to build a house? Unto the name of the Lord my God. He wanted to do it for God. This was not uh, to be done for his own personal glory. It was to be done for the glory of God. It was for his name alone. He wanted to do it for the, the name of God so that when people saw the temple, he wanted to make sure that they knew there was a God in heaven. And it was dedicated unto that almighty God who was magnificent and who was worthy of the best. The intent was to reveal his glory. Now, while there is no uh, earthly temple of God like the one that's being built here, God likens each of his children as living temples that must bring him glory. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says that God has called us to glory and virtue. So as his child, you are called to bring him glory. That's a high calling, isn't it? It is. It's something that we should take very seriously because it is a very high calling. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look a lot in the book of 1 Corinthians tonight as it does speak a, a very much to the, the temple, to the living temple, to our body. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, <clears throat> verse 18. Look at verse 18. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now this, again, we know from verse 18 that this is speaking in the context of fornication. Uh, 
because it defiles the temple of God that is your body. But in this we see a great truth, and it is this. Your body does not belong to you. It belongs to God. And isn't that popular today? It just people, you know, no, we don't hear that. that oh, my body's not my own. No, uh, what do we hear all the time? My body, my choice. You know, we're, we're all about uh, what we want. But your body does not belong to you. It belongs to God. So you need to glorify him in your body. And that which you say to people, what people see, and how you interact, and where you go, and what you do, and all that you do as you're out and about, it should be filtered really by one question, and that is this. Does what I am about to do or what I am doing bring honor and glory to God? Now, while all Christians are called to be an ambassador for Christ, many do a very poor job of it. And they do a very great disservice to the name of Christ. And unfortunately, there have been many that have used their Christian liberty in a way that actually brings shame to the name of God. It brings no glory to God. It defiles our temple. But when it comes to your public testimony, when it comes to what people see in your life, when, it's, when it comes to people watching how you carry yourself and, and how you dress and how you speak and what you listen to and what you watch, consider, does it bring honor and glory to God? And by the way, those things do matter. They matter. And look, there are some things in the Bible that are not explicitly stated as right or wrong. And that's when we need the Holy Spirit's guidance with them. But we should never ever go by what we feel or what we desire and then just claim Christian liberty. Because listen, and listen close, there's a reason for this. Because if we do that, then we are in danger of using our liberty for an occasion to the flesh. So how do we determine what we should do in regards to things that the Bible's not explicit on and it's not clear about. Well, we need to consider principles that are in Scripture. Look, we need to filter our decisions through the lens of Scripture Amen. and ask specific questions that will help guide us. And I found a series of questions that has Scripture along with it that's very helpful. It's kind of like a test. So when you're making decisions and you're, you're trying to figure out, okay, God, should I do this or should I not? And by the way, I'm just going to tell you this right now. Some Christians can do some things that other Christians cannot do. Some Christians have the liberty to do certain things that are not spelled out in the Bible that other Christians may not have liberty to do. So you, there's some gray areas, right? I mean, let's just be honest here. There, there are some things in the Bible, it's not explicit, it's not clear. But when you're making these decisions and you're trying to figure out, okay, God, should I do this? There are several questions that should be asked. And again, that comes from the Bible. But for one, you should ask this question, will it benefit me spiritually? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Should be close. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and look at verse 23. So when making a decision, ask yourself this question. Is this going to benefit me spiritually? Look at verse 23. Paul says in verse 23, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. That word uh, expedient there means profitable. And that word edify, uh, it means to promote Christian growth. So when you're, when you're trying to make a decision, ask yourself this question. Is it going to benefit me spiritually? Is it profitable to me spiritually? Is it going to edify me? Is it going to promote Christian growth? 
ask if it's going to enhance your spiritual life and cultivate godliness, and, and will it build you up spiritually? So here's the thing. If the answer to that question uh, is no, then you should really question whether or not that thing or that decision or that behavior is the right choice. And if it does the opposite, if it yields ungodliness, then the answer clearly should be no, you should not do that. It's very clear. So ask yourself that question, will it benefit me spiritually? But secondly, ask yourself this, will it bring me into bondage? Will it, will it bring me into addiction? Will it, it cause me to waste a lot of time? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12. <clears throat> Look at verse 12. And again, speaking of the, the temple of God, the living temple, our body. In verse 12 it says, all things are lawful unto me. All things are not expedient, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Amen. Look, don't allow yourself to be in bondage to anything or anyone. You are to be a bondservant and a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. You need to serve Him alone. You need to be controlled by Him and the Holy Spirit alone. So ask yourself, is this, does this have the potential to bring me into bondage? Now again, there's... As I mentioned, there are some things that certain Christians can do, certain Christians cannot. There are some things that a Christian cannot do because it will bring them into bondage that maybe another person may not struggle with. So you need to ask yourself that question. Will it bring me into bondage? Thirdly, will it defile God's temple? Keep your place in 1 Corinthians and go to Romans. Romans chapter 6. Will it defile God's temple? Romans chapter 6 verse 13. Again, keep your place in 1 Corinthians. In Romans chapter 6, verse 13, it says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God, as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So don't do anything that you know will harm your body. Don't do anything that you know will bring shame to God, because it is the body is an instrument that you have to glorify God. So use it to glorify Him. So again, ask yourself, will this defile God's temple? Fourthly, ask yourself this, will it cause anybody to stumble? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll look at a couple verses here, but look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and look at verse 8. And this is speaking of food that was sacrificed to idols, and this is what Paul said. He said in verse 8, he said, But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, if we eat not. We are the worst. He, he's saying, look, it doesn't matter. If you eat meat that's offered up to idols, it doesn't mean that you're more spiritual or that you're not, uh, you're, you're less spiritual. It's not, it's not like that. Look at verse 9, though. But it says, but take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. So if you know that your choice and that which you consider to be in bounds or approved, again, it's something that's not necessarily explicitly in the Bible, if it causes another Christian to stumble and it causes them to sin, then you need to love that brother or sister in Christ enough to restrict your own freedom. Right. Now, again, in our selfish society, in our, oh, it's all about me world, that's not popular, but it's biblical. If my actions is going to cause another brother or sister in Christ to sin, I need to love them enough to not promote that specific act or partake in it. So ask yourself that question. Will it cause anybody to stumble? Look at verse 12 and 13 of chapter 8. It says, But when ye sin so against the brethren, 
and wound their weak conscience, he sinned against Christ. Wow. You sin against Christ. Look at verse 13. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. It's really thought-provoking, isn't it? And of course, we don't promote legalism. We don't, uh, be, we don't need to be nitpicky, but we need to think about these things. Is it going to cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble? And then fifthly, and lastly, you need to ask yourself this. Will it further the cause of Christ in evangelism? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and look at verse 32. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32. It says, Give none offense, neither to Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Hey, whether you're aware of it or not, what you do and your behavior and how you live affects your witness for Christ. And the world is watching. So it matters how you live. It matters what you do. And again, I know this is not popular in our secular world. Well, you know, I can do what I want. Listen, if that is your attitude, something's wrong with you. Something is spiritually wrong with you. Either you're not following God or you're not saved because you're not going to have that attitude. Don't be selfish. You need to be considerate of other people. And, and consider uh, what my testimony is like to the world. It's an issue of testimony. And your life either promotes the truth of God or it denies it. The, cho- the choices that you make uh, in areas like this and how you, you carry yourself and you go about your life, uh, it really should reflect your concern for the Lord. Now finally, I, I, I know I said that, the, that was the last one, but I, I already mentioned this first one, but I want to mention it again. You need to ask, finally, does it bring glory to God? So look, whenever you face a decision where Scripture is not clear, then run it through those questions. And then if you have the liberty to do whatever it is after that, then praise God. And always remember that we are to be a living temple and our life does not exist to please ourselves, but to glorify Him. Just as the Westminster Confession states, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's chief end of man. That's what we're here for. But how often do we, you know, say, yeah, you know, I want to glorify God, and I'm all about glorifying God, but then when we must change something, we're like, oh, wait a minute, right? Consider that. If you need to change something, then do it. If you need to do something differently to better glorify the Lord, then do so. Let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 5. 1 Kings chapter 5, look at verse 7. I'm going to just kind of run through a few verses here. 1 Kings 5, look at verse 7. The Bible says, And it came to pass, when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, which hath given unto David a wise son over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the things which thou sentest to me for, and I will do all thy desire concerning timber of cedar and concerning timber of fir. My servant shall bring them down from Lebanon unto the sea, and I will convey them by sea and floats unto the place that thou shalt appoint me, and will cause them to be discharged there. And thou shalt receive them, and thou shalt accomplish my desire in giving food for my household. So Hiram gave Solomon cedar trees and fir trees according to all his desire. So in this, we see the continuation of this deal being made by these two kings. Now the Israelites, they would be given the cedar trees that they needed, while King Hiram and his people would be given food. Now, Tyree, while it was a, a great place to grow trees, 
uh, it was very rocky terrain and it grew very little food. So the steel would be a great blessing to his people. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 measures of wheat for food to his household, and 20 measures of pure oil. Thus gave Solomon to Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and they made a league together. So we see in this part of of the, the verses here in this chapter that the food that would be given in exchange for these trees, but a full report of this is actually given in 2 Chronicles chapter 2. Let's go there. 2 Chronicles chapter 2. 2 Chronicles chapter 2, and look at verse 9. In 2 Chronicles 2, verse 9, it says, Even to prepare me timber in abundance, for the house which I am about to build shall be wonderful, great. And behold, I will give to thy servants, the hewers that cut timber, 20,000 measures of beaten wheat, and 20,000 measures of barley, and 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. So Solomon, again, in in verse 9, he reiterates how uh, much he desired to have the the temple be glorious, and this further shows his great concern for ensuring that God is glorified in this temple. But in verse 10, he tells us all that King Hiram's workers would be given uh, as far as food goes, and it would, this would be given yearly, year by year, as it tells us in First Kings, until the work was done. Now, I just want to break down real quick in simplified measurements each year what these workers would get. They would get a million gallons of wheat, to, and this would all be split between them. A million gallons of wheat, a million gallons of barley, 115,000 gallons of wine, 115,000 gallons of of oil, So they would get all of this for their work, for cutting and prepping and shipping the cedar logs to Solomon. Look at verse 8 of this chapter, of chapter 2, 2 Chronicles. It says, Send me also cedar trees, fir trees, and algum trees out of Lebanon, for I know that thy servants can skill to cut timber in Lebanon, and behold, my servant shall be with thy servants. And again, it says in verse 9, even to prepare me timber in abundance. So they would, uh, they would be cutting, they would be prepping, and they would be shipping these cedar logs to Solomon. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 5. 1 Kings chapter 5, and look at verse 13. Verse 13, it says, And King Solomon raised a levy out of all Israel, and the levy was with 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month by courses. A month they were in Lebanon, and two months at home, and Adonaram was over the levy. And Solomon had threescore and 10,000 that bear burdens, and fourscore thousand hewers in the mountains, beside the chief of Solomon's officers, which were over the work, 3,000 and 300, which ruled over the people that wrought in the work. So it tells you that, that Solomon, he raised a levy of men out of Israel, which simply means that he, he, he raised a band of laborers. So these men here, they would work one month each quarter of the year to help Hiram's men. And then they would have two months off. Wouldn't that be nice, huh? (laughs) You go back home. Look at verse 17. It says, And the king commanded, and they brought great stones, costly stones and huge stones, to lay the foundation of the house. And Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them, and the stone squarers. So they prepared timber and stones to build the house. So Solomon commands that these stones for the foundation of the temple would be great and costly 
and hewed stones. Now, I just want to break these down for you. The, the great stones, when it speaks of great stones, it's talking about hard and whitish stones. When it says costly stones, it literally means high-quality stones. And when it speaks of huge stones, it means neatly polished stones. Now, again, we see top-notch, best of the best, highest quality. And, and all of those, all of those materials, all those that stone it was used for the foundation of the temple, which, by the way, it wouldn't even be seen. But he wanted the best of the best. And as Spurgeon said, he said that this speaks to the way that we should work for God. We don't work for appearances only, but also to excel in the deep and hidden things. So Solomon, he wanted that which was going to be unseen to be the highest quality. Hey, it doesn't matter. If it's not going to be seen by the eyes of men, it's for God. So I want it to be the best. So in all things, church, in that which is unseen, is it done for God's glory? Look, when you give your offering and nobody sees, are you doing it for God's glory? When you are preparing your lessons, Sunday school teachers, junior church teachers, are you doing so to the glory of God? When you're working in nursery, when you're taking up the offering, when you're doing whatever it is that you're doing in service to Christ, are you doing it for the glory of God? When you pray, when you read your Bible, when you're serving behind the scenes, when you're uh, doing all the little things, is it being done for the glory of God? Are you doing your best, even in the unseen? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Of course, we've looked in this chapter a few times, but I want to draw our attention to one specific verse that we have not read yet. <clears throat> it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. In verse 31, it says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now, Paul specifically singles out eating and drinking, and he does it to make a point. The point is this. Listen, even in the mundane, even in the routine, even in that which may seem boring, even in the simple and everyday parts of life, it should be done to glorify God. In everything. In all things. In that which is unseen. In that which appears to matter very little. Everything that we do, we need to do it to the glory of God. So with that in mind, ask yourself this question, how much do I need to change? What am I not doing for the glory of God? Now this does not mean that everything that we do has to be gospel and ministry driven. Obviously there are times where we need to rest and relax and enjoy leisure, but you can do that also to the glory of God. I read this in Edward Welch's book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. He put in that book that God's holiness and His glory can be revealed in His people by what we do and who we are. And this is what he said. He said, God's holiness is revealed in His fatherly love and discipling. Our imitation can also be expressed in fathering. As His holiness is demonstrated in being a worker, so does ours. God has served us, and so we should imitate Him and serve other people. And listen to this. He said, therefore, a Christian father who takes the time to play soccer with his children is imaging God who spends time with his people. A child who sets the table 
or cleans the dinner dishes out of obedience to Christ is imaging the servant God and that's glorifying Him. A worker who does the mundane work with a desire to serve Christ is imaging the Son who has worked on our behalf. Look, and all we do, glorify God. Reflect Christ. And you know, there, we also imitate God in other ways, as children. In 1 John 3, 1, it tells us that, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. May we be obedient children of God. We also imitate God as slaves, as Romans 6.22 tells us, But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruits unto holiness. We imitate God as friends, as John chapter 15, verse 13, Christ said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. We also mirror him and imitate him as soldiers, according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 18. We also imitate him as living stones, as 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, Ye also as lively stones are built up in spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We also imitate him as husbands. We also imitate him as brides, as Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So look, church, in all these things... And everything that we do, we are to bring glory and honor to God. Everything that we do must represent God and bring glory to Him, even in the small things, in the mundane, in the everyday, behind closed doors, in our homes, on the job, in your finances, in all things. You are to imitate God and bring Him glory. You're to mirror Him. And everything, by the way, that God has made, it was created to bring Him glory. The Bible tells us in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the work of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. You're here to glorify God. So how are you doing? Again, in 1 Kings 5, Solomon wanted this temple to be magnificent, to show the glory of God. And even more importantly, is for you to show the glory of God in your temple. You know, most so-called Christians, they live their life as if they are walking on the broad way that leads to destruction. Their lifestyle reflects that of a lost man. So does what you do and the way you live glorify God? Are you living unselfishly for the glory of God? Are you properly representing Christ and bringing Him glory in all that you do? And listen to this closely. A true disciple of Christ must pursue Him. We must not pursue Him for self-gain. We shouldn't pursue him for a better life or for the hopes of being made prosperous, which, by the way, that's very popular these days. Paul mentioned it in Sunday school. And we've seen it recently, locally. You know, oh, I, I'll, I'll love God because he's going to make me prosperous. Well, that's not uh, the right attitude. And by the way, that's not even true. You, know, you may decide, I'm going to follow Christ and tomorrow I'll lose everything. Then what? You still live and do all for the glory of God. But Solomon, he desired to make every aspect of the temple glorifying to God. Why? Because he was God. And therefore, he was worthy of it. So likewise, as you look to pursue Christ, you need to pursue Christ and look to glorify him because of who he is. Well, who is Christ? He's our master. He's our Lord. He's our shepherd. He's our savior. He's our redeemer and he's our king. So therefore, he's worthy of our life. So worship him. Glorify him. Pursue him. We need to live for His glory because of who He is. How many people only desire to glorify God 
and obey with selfish motives. Oh, I'll obey God because he's going to heal me. Oh, I'll obey God because he's going to bless me or help me or give me a better life or, or fix my problems or etc. That's totally backwards. Worship Christ and glorify him because of who he is. I like what Paul Washer said. He said, if Jesus Christ isn't strong enough to motivate you to live biblically, then you don't know him. Do you know him? If so, as you work, as you live, as you provide, as you interact with others, as you serve, as you love, and all that you do, do what Solomon did. And do it unto the name of the Lord your God. Thomas Watson said that glorifying God consists of four things. Adoration, appreciation, affection, and subjection. And this is the yearly rent that we pay to the crown of heaven. Church, look, live in subjection to him. Don't live in subjection to the flesh. Glorify him in all things. As we close, consider, what do you need to change in order to glorify Christ better in your life? You know, as, as members of this church, you represent this church. But most importantly, you represent Christ. Amen. Represent him well. Glorify him in everything that you do. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.